all we're doing is we're telling stories for the future. Why AI is going to be a bigger bubble than crypto is it's so easy. You just log into ChatGPT and you do a poem to your mother and do it in the voice of Walt Whitman and your mom, oh my God, you're such a good poet. Uh, everyone can understand what AI might do. And so of course you've got NVIDIA already at crazy price. Doesn't mean it can't double, right? Bubbles don't normally last three months. They just don't. We are thrilled to have everybody back for another episode of the 1000X podcast today. We've got one of the larger than life figures in, in crypto today. Mike Novogratz is joining us. Uh, you know, I'm su super psyched. I think we're going to have a, we're going to have a great conversation and just ready to, ready to dive in. I mean, Mike, I've, I've, I've known you for, for a bit and I've always been kind of fascinated by your, by your background here. Um, you've had a pretty diverse one. You were Princeton wrestler, military helicopter pilot. You've mentioned running marathons in the Sahara and even doing a, a little bit of ayahuasca. What experiences do you think contributed the most to your success in your career? You know, wrestling, uh, in that it teaches you how to lose and come back. You know, it teaches you tenacity. It teaches you toughness. Uh, there's a great quote, once you've wrestled, uh, everything else, everything else in life is easy. And so, I mean, I was a good wrestler. I wasn't a great wrestler, but, but it defined who I was until I was 22. Um, and so I think that's where the foundation comes from. Um, I also got lucky in that I pivoted my way into something that I was naturally good at, right? If you think about what macro investing is, it's, a combination of reading economic trends, political trends, uh, social, social trends, um, and understanding how markets behave with, with those inputs. Um, there's a lot of intuition in it, right? It's, it's very different than some businesses. Uh, there's hustle, but mostly intuition. And I, stumbled into it because, you know, it's a storyteller's business, right? You, you, you look at the world, you create a story, you then put your positions on and you tell that story. Uh, and I was kind of a natural born storyteller. And so macro came really natural to me. I didn't know that. I, when I was a salesman at Goldman Sachs, I thought I was just cute and charming. Uh, and uh, people like to deal with me because I was fun. It wasn't until I left being a salesman and left being a trader at Goldman when I was doing my hedge fund that I realized, well, oh, shit, they talked to me because I was right most of the time. You know, that my ability to either know who was going to be right and, and steal that info or that, that story uh, or synthesize the information was was right more than it was wrong. Um, and so that's a lot of luck to stumble in a career, like to, to figure out what you're good at. You mentioned a couple of points in there that, that we sort of wanted to drill in on with you. Um, macro investing, it's notoriously difficult. It's, you know, the number of variables that go into the equation whose output is the price of some macro asset like Bitcoin or crude oil. It, it's vast. It's immense. So, you know, obviously there's synthesizing the information. Maybe you hear about the right thing from somebody else. But I think listeners would really appreciate learning from you directly uh, do, do you have a process for synthesizing these macro trades before you go and, and tell the tell the story? Yeah, I do. I do. It's it's 
not linear, right? So I think what's important for everyone is to figure out what information they need to make a decision and how you process that information. So in macro, there's tons of data points, right? From country visits to charts to, to you know, surveys to fundamentals. Uh, and so I'm talking to people in all kinds of different areas of expertise. So when I used to tra trade emerging markets, I would go to a country and I would meet the bankers and I would meet corporates and I would meet the investors and I'd meet the press. Uh, and pretty soon I met the central bank and the Ministry of Finance. Pretty soon I would understand Indonesia. Um, you know, I used to tell people when I was trading dollar yen, if I had the newspaper for the end of the year and you had the newspaper for the end of the year, uh, both in the U.S. And, and in Japan, we still might make different bets on where dollar yen is going to be and we might not be right. Right. There's, and so you take all this data and you put it through your algorithm. Mine, mine is pattern recognition, right? I look at the chart and it tells me something. Uh, it's fundamental analysis, political analysis. It's, it's all those analysis. At the bottom, it's a guess. It's an I think. I think. And because you're guessing, you're scared all the time. What if I'm wrong? Oh shit. And so the real trick is can you develop a discipline, uh, and this is where wrestling or other disciplines come into play, where you create a set of rules that you manage your risk by and manage your life by, quite frankly, that allows you the best chance of having your guesses be in your portfolio. So that's often stop losses or sizing or some philosophy, right? What most macro traders in crypto missed last year and the year before is like, they're like, ah, oh, going straight up. And then, you know, they made a ton of money and they lost 75% on average. Uh, they don't realize when you lose 75%, you're pretty much out of business, right? It takes five and a half up 25% years to come back to zero. Like no one's got the patience to wait five and a half years and 25% is a good year, right? Uh, and so people didn't have an understanding of risk and volatility and stop losses and, and quite frankly, even year end, right? You're running a hedge fund and you go into year end and you're up 80% on Jan one, you're up zero. So you can be using, you can be playing with the house's money and the house's money is your money starting Jan one, right? You've taken your 20% promote. Now your investors uh, don't expect you to have a huge drawdown. And so all of those lessons, you know, can be put in those three buckets. What information do you need? How do you process it? And then what are the rules that give you the best chance of staying alive and having your portfolio match your views? So I always told traders to carry three notebooks and, and you get better in each of those notebooks. Yeah, that makes, that makes a ton of sense. I mean, from a, from a crypto perspective, crypto markets are intensely short-term and then also intensely long-term in many ways. You need this, you know, five, 10, 20 year outlook to stay convicted in the asset class. But there's so many things that happen on a day to day basis, on a week to week basis that change price pretty, pretty immensely. So when you're thinking about how you used to trade in the, in the macro markets and, you know, what the types of assets that you used to trade before and how you, how you approach, how you approach crypto today, what, what are, what are some, what are some differences and, and similarities 
between those two asset classes? Crypto last year was an 80 vol asset. And I had never traded an 80 vol asset. The year before it was a 100 vol asset. And so if you were going to have a $10 million fund and run it 90% long, you're pretty much just going to a casino and flipping coins. Like the, the, the chance of having a, a volatility adjusted return, a sharp ratio, uh, was ludicrous unless you just got lucky when it went straight up. Um, and so the biggest lesson or the biggest transition you need to make is sizing and expectations, right? Most crypto funds had too much risk in it. Now that was really fun when you bought something at one and it went to 400, but to do it one to 400 happens once in a lifetime. And we were having, having it happen all the time. And so the just knowledge that this was bubbles, that was a bubble caused by a beautiful idea. It was a bubble caused by a set of circumstances of zero interest rates and people at home and young people wanting to gamble that having had that experience encouraged me to take chips off the table, sometimes too early, but to be constantly a chip taker. Um, and some of my younger friends who hadn't gone through cycles uh, and didn't really understand bubbles would take a little bit of chips off and get right back in, you know? And so I think experience had some, you know, some merit uh, in the last, both in the 17 cycle and the 21 cycle. Um, but real reality, even on a go forward basis, it's all sizing. Um, right? Crypto's up even after today's sell-off 55% on the year. Single best asset other than NVIDIA. Uh, but is it really? Well, if you've all adjusted, it's still up. It's still got a high sharp ratio, but it's not as good as, say, Apple uh, this year. Uh, it was. You know, now it's having a correction. Um, and so you've got to be careful. And it doesn't mean you can't take a lot of risk. You need to take a lot of risk in bursts. And, you know, right now volatility seems very low and mispriced. And so shifting some of your cash position and options makes sense to me. Um, but it's all those tools that you learn over time that you need to survive. Uh, but the biggest lesson is, you know, understand volatility. If stocks trade at 20 volatility and currencies at 10, and crypto at 50 or 60, you're for the same conviction, your position sizes should be very different. The other mistake people make is, well, I'm a crypto guy. Just a, you're, you're, you're an investor. It's an asset. You're a trader. It's got unique characteristics, but so does crude oil and so does natural gas and so does corn and so do interest rates and so do currencies. And so, this idea of crypto as its own asset class, or I'm a crypto trader, uh, that was misplaced for most fund managers. It wasn't misplaced for the engineers. It wasn't misplaced for the revolutionaries in the space. But if you're a fund manager, it was misplaced. Managing portfolios is the same no matter what you manage. So you mentioned something interesting in there. You, you know, you mentioned 
the fundamentals of risk taking and understanding volatility, um, you're you're known as being one of the risk takers, not just in crypto, but in, in macro more broadly. What what specific characteristics does crypto have that help you um, remain so convicted in the space even during drawdowns? Like what do you, what what framework do you cling to when things are looking a little shaky? So we're in the zone still where we're selling a vision of the future. And what made crypto unique is let's separate it, right? Bitcoin came at a time, right, when people were losing trust in the, in the, in the centralized infrastructure, governments, banks, um, but also at a time when populism was creeping its way into every government, right? If you look at debt to GDP in the U.S., it's skyrocketed since 08, right? So that's debt to GDP is a pretty good proxy for populism. Governments want to spend money because it feels good. And I remember Trump said when he had the single greatest increase in government spending ever, and that was before COVID, Someone said, who's going to pay for it? He said, someone else can worry about that. Uh, right. He had the single greatest gov- increase in government spending and he had tax cuts. Right. Because it felt good. And so that story's not going away. Right. We just had a we just had a um, budget. I mean, a, a, def- a debt ceiling showdown. And, you know, McCarthy's declaring victory. Biden's declaring victory. Uh, they did cap spending for two years on non-defense. <laughs> um, but they capped it at a level that was close to 24% of GDP when government spending normally is closer to 20% of GDP. So it's like me giving you triple allowance for two years as a young kid and then saying, I'm going to get tough. You know, this year I'm only giving you triple allowance again. <laughs> You know, we're spending more than we tax. And that is the narrative for why Bitcoin or other hard assets will appreciate over time. And so I don't think we can get out of that story for the next 10 years, 15 years. And so I'm a, I'm a really structural bullish on hard assets. Um, there are going to be big cyclical moves, right? When rates were zero, of course, Bitcoin should have gone to 65,000. When Powell decided to raise them really fast and try to stop the runaway train of inflation, Bitcoin was supposed to come back down. Um, and so I do think you've got to have a, you're going to have an economic cycle within that big secular trend uh, and an adoption cycle. Uh, we thought institutions were going to buy crypto. I've got 430 people at Galaxy all geared up to help institutions come in to buy crypto and a combination of bad behavior with a lot of our peers, uh, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried and, and co. Uh, tough regulation or bad regulation or no regulation out of the U.S. and 5% interest rates and that enthusiasm has waned. Now, the only silver lining is retail still buying. It was always the people's revolution and they're still out there. And so I haven't given up faith, certainly in Bitcoin. Um, the other parts of crypto, right, this big decentralized revolution, what will be built on Ethereum and this base layer of trust that we can build this whole new world on is happening. But the market now 
seems to want to see shit that works. I, I don't have an app yet, right? If we lived in in Africa or the Mideast, we would probably use crypto for payments. But here we probably use Apple Pay, right? Works. Um, and so unless you're an early adopter, you're not using Web3 in your normal life. And I think doesn't mean we can't have markets go higher because there's a trillion dollars in the crypto space that cares about it. But I think to suck people in, to get them really excited again, especially with the competition AI, we're going to need some apps that people can get their teeth, you know, teeth into and their mind around. And because even with that, all we're doing is we're telling stories for the future. Why AI is going to be a bigger bubble than crypto is it's so easy. You just log into ChatGPT and you do a poem to your mother and do it in the voice of Walt Whitman and your mom, oh my God, you're such a good poet. Uh, everyone can understand what AI might do. And so, of course, you've got NVIDIA already at crazy price. Doesn't mean it can't double, right? Bubbles don't normally last three months. They just don't. They normally last a couple years. Uh, and so, I don't know if NVIDIA goes straight up, but I would tell you, I don't think we've seen the high uh, of that whole AI bubble. And so crypto is going to compete with that. We can come up with why crypto is important. It could be really important, right? Authentication, right? With all these deep fakes and how do I validate that this is actually my work or, you know, my, um, but now I want to see people actually show me the app that does it. And even if it doesn't get complete adoption, then we're telling stories that people can get their you know, sink their teeth into again. Yeah, I think I think that's that's one of the tough. I was actually just talking about this uh, with with my partner, my partner Joe, earlier today. It's we're 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 in the we're in the show me stage. My my opinion, it's the you know it's without without something that brings in a ton of people uh, that's as easy to use as as ChatGPT. You you kind of get stuck, and I, I think Bitcoin obviously has that narrative already built in the store of value narrative, the hard asset narrative, the rest of crypto less so. But that's also, you know, what we're constantly looking for uh, in in the market, right? It's looking for what are the what are the most what are the most promising opportunities in the crypto space right now? I mean, for people like us, if we're investing long term, that's that's where we that's where we look. So I'm I'm curious for you when you think about the crypto market in aggregate. So you know, we have your view we have your view on Bitcoin. Outside of that, where do you find the most interesting opportunities? Is it in short-term trading? Is it in, you know, long-term investing in protocols, investing in applications? I mean, where where are you finding the most opportunity right now? We keep Bitcoin and Ethereum as kind of core. Um, I like the the supply-demand, the, you know, setup for Ethereum, right? There's just not a whole lot of supply. Um, I have less, and we're, we're still putting small amounts of venture out, but I think people got too long venture over the last cycle, and that's going to take time to digest through. Uh, our lending business is an interesting business because a lot of the lenders got out of the market, right? Genesis, BlockFi, Voyager, Celsius. And so uh, that's a more conservative way of, of staying in the game. Um, but it's, it's, it's certainly less... Alty <laughs> than it was was in the past, um, and my expectation is 
this is going to be more lackadaisical uh, for a while. I got my eye on gaming still because gaming is so tangential to crypto. And while there haven't been a lot of Web3 games that have taken off yet, there are a couple that are starting to get a little bit of traction. Uh, Mythical's got uh, an, N an NBA, you know, uh, smash up game that is, is, is starting to get a little bit of traction. Um, that makes too much intuitive sense that Web3 and gaming, and, and gaming is just in a 25-year bull market, right? Young kids love to game. And so we have a fund that invests in gaming with some Web3, but when they underwrite, they're underwriting game studios, right? They're not really underwriting. And the, the Web3 is, is often the, the cherry on top. Um, and so that's kind of it. Again, there's some specific investments our guys will make uh, because they think there's unique teams and uh, you want to be still in the game. If we if we run it back uh, run it back to your points earlier talking about Bitcoin specifically and and how we've been trading with the with 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 the broader markets and how you sort of think about Bitcoin as this as this hedge against irresponsible government uh, spending or irresponsible government actions. I mean, this year we've had you know we, we've we've had a lot of different events and a lot of different regimes in the in in the crypto markets, right? So at the beginning of the year you had Bitcoin correlating very heavily. With with risk markets with tech, then after SVB, it was more much more correlated with gold uh, than, than than anything else, and now it seems to be almost doing its own thing. You have Qs ripping in a pretty narrow rally, but Bitcoin just refusing refusing to follow. And so when you when you think about what's happening there and who's participating, yeah, and what's so driving I, it, I think we're not going to get a sustained Bitcoin rally until the Fed says we're done and we're cutting. And that, in my mind, is probably end of summer. We've all been a little bit too, too pessimistic um, on the economy. I think what we're going to go back, when history is rewritten, the $4 trillion of you know, COVID stimulus was really an experiment in universal basic income. And it's lasted longer than people thought and people spend money and they like their new lifestyle. And so we've had a service economy that continues to be vibrant where the industrial economy has been slowing and slowing. And so as a macro guy, you're, you're used to, you know, ISM surveys, all these things rolling over. You're like, of course, unemployment's going to follow and it hasn't. Um, you know, we have banking crises. Look like that was the end, and all of a sudden, the government gives more money to all the banks, um, and you know we just had a big strong jobs report. I think it's getting more hollow, and I think the economy will slow. And so I think, uh, matter of fact, I did today. I bought some SEP thirty ether and Bitcoin calls. Um, I think that's probably you know end of summer. You get the Fed either having started to cut or at least saying we're worried about the economy and you know they're going to cut and that's probably the next thing that gets bitcoin and ETH higher do you think we ever go back to two percent inflation i personally don't i think they're going to revise that target higher to allow for the the cycle you just described to continue of people uh post-covid basically um it's a great question i think they're going to talk two percent and hope for three percent 
Like, if, if you think about when I graduated from college, debt to GDP was about 50%. It's about 130% now, 125%. Uh, you guys can check me on my facts. Uh, the only way out of that is inflating your debt away. And so, like, last year they did a pretty good job, right? We had 7% inflation. <laughs> you know, we're paying 3% for our debt, 2.5%. That was the kind of blended average. So you just inflated 4% of the debt away. You need to do that for a while. Um, and of course, you can't say that as a central banker. and You can't say that as a treasury official. Uh, but you want to have higher inflation uh, to get out of the debt trap. Um, if it gets too high, you're screwed. And so it's a really, really challenging dance for the stewards of your economy to pull off. Um, and so it, it, it's something to watch. Listen, there are structural reasons why inflation will be more stubborn. But in a lot of ways, this is we had 30 years of globalization where the wealthy were getting a bigger and bigger share and workers weren't. And now workers are fighting back. Like wages are going higher. Uh, they're not enough of them. Uh, we're going to rebuild supply chains because of the ridiculous war we have with China. Um, and so I think there'll be some structural reasons why inflation is stickier. Uh, and so you might be right, but I don't think they're going to reset their target. Okay. That's, that's a, a good framework for thinking about this. This next question, which is, um, is Bitcoin, you know, we all know that Bitcoin's a debasement hedge. If, you know, monetary and fiscal policy are too profligate, Bitcoin performs. But, you know, obviously we saw that it isn't necessarily the best inflation hedge last year. So do you see prolonged inflation as a form of debasement, which leads to Bitcoin performance? Or how do you, how do you think about the relationship between alternate monetary, monetary systems like crypto and policy? Yeah, as, as, as fiat currencies get debased, hard assets should go higher. Remember, we had a speculative frenzy around Bitcoin because it was a spectacular inflation hedge. If you bought it at the beginning of COVID, you bought it at 7000 and it went to 69000 10 extra money. There was no better inflation hedge in the world than Bitcoin or other crypto during COVID, when we were all panicked about inflation. When inflation finally showed, if Powell hadn't, you know, strapped up and become a real central banker uh, and, you know, he took a sledgehammer to the to the gonads of uh, of inflation, right? That was painful. Uh, crypto would have kept going higher, um, and so I, I I think it's unfair to say it wasn't a good inflation. There was a lot of inflation last year, but there was a central bank fighting it, and so markets always get ahead of where they're supposed to be, and so um, I think again it it'll trade semi-correlated with gold and semi-correlated with risk. And I say that because it's a new asset. And so if you're really in a, oh shit, I'm losing everything. I want to pay down leverage. I'm not sure I have the courage to buy new assets, right? That's why the adoption curve happens. It's why young people get more comfortable with it than, than old people because old people have never, you know, they have their own safe assets. Um, and so the only thing I see promising right now um, in the midst of, you know, regulatory assault and, 
and very little sponsorship from institutions is retail continues to accumulate through the, you know, we cover the platforms like a B2B to C player. And it's surprising to me how much buying happens every day in small amounts that adds up to big amounts. Um, and so I don't think if we get an S and P that just gets the hell knocked out of it, uh, if there's a fed response of much lower rate. So if it's not stagflation, I think Bitcoin can do okay. Uh, but if it's a stagflation, I think Bitcoin will struggle for a while. By the, by the way, I think, uh, I think we were fighting each other on those calls today. Mike. I was, I was, I was li lifting, lifting some as well, actually from you guys. <laughs> so thank you. Th thank you for that. Let's hope uh, they think alike. Yeah, exa exactly. I mean, the vol vols just come in so much trading sub 40 on ETH. So, well, so here, BTC. Here, here's the risk yeah. on vol. Yeah. Is that, listen, we talked to, I don't know how many between miners and hedge funds and private equity and protocols, right? Over a hundred crypto institutions and banking and most of them aren't rolling in dough. Most of them have made cuts already and have an operating budget that was made for a different era. Uh, and, and so selling calls went from being a hedge to being an income generator. That's very dangerous, right? And you've been paid to sell calls. Right. So after that first rally, selling anything is you look smart. And so what what happens often is people get addicted to that income. And so while crypto vol seems crazy cheap, I told my guys, don't spend all your money yet. It could get cheaper and it will get cheaper and cheaper until suddenly shifts. And then everyone who's got short is going to get their face ripped off. But that's the, the painful cycle of markets. And so. I was trying to have a, a lottery on how low crypto, you know, both ETH and, and Bitcoin vols will go and will we go sub 30? Because 30 is about as high as you get in no, normal assets. It would be the first time doesn't get into that. And so I, I, I don't know. I don't have a, a magic wand on that. But I do know um, it wouldn't surprise me if it went lower. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think it comes back to what you said, what you said about sizing. Because every time, every time you lose on that trade, it is likely a better trade at, at the end of that, All right? So if it, if you, if you lift if you lift some calls and in, in a month you ha you haven't won to that, then yeah. you're probably looking at sub thirty. So you just size it to be able to get in there, right? Yeah. Uh, which which makes which makes a ton of sense. I'm I'm, I'm kind of curious. You, you said something there about uh, in you know in institutions being a lot more reluctant than retail to get to get into the market and, and retail being, being the driving force, maybe, maybe a two part question. What, what do you think, what do you think people are missing about why retail, uh, you know, is buying and what do you think it, what could really increase that, increase that rate of adoption? Is it, and you know, is it going to come from inside the U S outside the U S I mean, I think outside, listen, yeah. we just had Hong Kong, uh, Hong Kong allow retail to buy through regulated exchanges you know, they can't use stable coins, so there's going to be a little bit of a, a uh, educational and onboarding, you know, uh, delay. But that's important. Uh, I think Asia continues to be uh, a place where people like to gamble and people understand crypto. And so 
um, that won't surprise me to see Asia continue to be important. Um, but I think retail is this kind of slow grindy. You know, we need new storytellers, right? It doesn't help that CZ gets indicted by the SEC or that like, our our storytellers, our our promoters, our explainers are important parts of the ecosystem. I keep teasing that I've done my share, and someone else has to actually start going on CNBC and you know tell the crypto story. Um, but what Bitcoin and all these ecosystems are are social constructs between people, right? The genus isn't in the the technology. We could recreate it and call it Abicoin, and it would be really hard for you to get 140 million people to want to store their hard-earned savings in the Abicoin blockchain, right? So Bitcoin has this giant head start, but you need to bring people explain it to them, have them understand it so they're willing to trust their savings. Um, Bitcoin is just a store of value in lots of ways. So that's the, that's all that there is. It's the social construct. It's a miracle that we created a brand in 12 or 13 years with a $400 billion market cap or whatever the market cap is owned by 150 million people. It's the seventh or eighth largest country in the world, like Bitcoin Nation. That's a freaking miracle, and lots of people deserve a lot of credit for it. Uh, each of the crypto ecosystems need that in some ways. So we can't have 400, right? Uh, Ethereum has done an amazing job. They have a different story, a different use case. But until more and more of the world's run on block space, the storytelling piece is important, right? Vitalik is wildly important, even though he owns less than 1% of all the Ethereum. Right. As a symbolic head who's been a good guy, who hasn't been the, the, you know, like if there's one hero of the space, it's probably Vitalik. Um, He's wildly important. Joe Lubin was important to that Ethereum ecosystem, all the investments he did building up the ecosystem, building up consensus. Uh, But they need more in each of these. And one of the things we we're having now is when you see yesterday's heroes become scoundrels. Um, it's not good. And so you need to see some new, some new storytellers, some new ideas emerge to get the animal spirits going again, to draw people back into our systems. That is, that is an interesting point you bring up that storytelling leads to demand for crypto's product, which is block space. And if you look on the Ethereum network, um, you know, block space has been in demand, right? If there's a neutral level, which is 16 guai, above which it's deflationary, below which uh, it's inflationary, been averaging, you know, 50 to 100 guai for a long time. So clearly people want this stuff and the fundamentals look strong. But like you said, it's hard to fight the flows. There are people coming in selling calls every day. Well, what's so interesting is when I, I was talking to one of my friends, you guys probably can figure his who runs a big, you know, Ethereum ecosystem company. Um, that's mostly on chain and it doesn't feel one third as bad there than it does in any of the, you know, the CFI slash DeFi companies, companies like ours, because there's that vibrancy that you're talking about that's happening. You know, if it's people using MetaMask growth or, you know, that, that original organic crypto peer to peer world is still growing. Um, I, last time I looked at Blockspace last year, it was dominated by NFTs, 
and OpenSea was literally eating all the block space. Uh, NFTs were an amazing vehicle for us to tell stories and explain to people that one of Satoshi's geniuses was not just Bitcoin, but it was the first private property in the digital space, the first private property on the internet, right? There was no capitalism without private property. There's no freedom without private property. And Satoshi gave us that in the best way for the masses to understand that was the NFT. And so when NFTs came, they exploded because uh, it was understandable, right? You can pull people in. If it was NFT, NBA Top Shot or Candy or Punks or, I mean, I'm looking, we've got 10 Punks hanging in our office. Uh, we have our own Galaxy NFTs. That, that, of course, you know, those prices got crazy, right? People at $69 million might have been the greatest short in history. And I love people. Um, but the concept was wildly important. Uh, and that's not going to go away. You know, again, you need, now you need NFTs that are, are gamified NFTs that are part of broader ecosystems that can connect customers to their, to, to their brands like loyalty points that, that become not just commemorative tickets, but real tickets. And so all that infrastructure is being worked on and built. Once one of those things takes off again, you'll hear about it and you'll start seeing the next hype, hype cycle. Uh, it makes total sense. So, you, you know, you obviously understand storytelling. You're fantastic at it. And you, you know how to pick out a good story before it necessarily becomes popular and goes viral. That, that's probably, you know, if I had to guess, something behind your original investment in Bitcoin. So why is it, you know, Avi and I both wanted to know this. Why is it that you decided to create you know, a, a diversified financial crypto services company this time, as opposed to your previous venture. <laughs> That's a great is, question. Yeah, well, I, I, another way of asking it: Why not just go long, uh, long Bitcoin and walk away? You know what? I was just on the phone with a friend of mine who did that. We went in together, and I was like, "Man, oh man, there are days I wake up and wish I just did what you did because it would have been so much easier." Listen, I was fifty. Less on 59, 58 now. That was five years ago. I was young 50s. Um, and I figured I had one more chapter in life, at least. And I love working with the young people. I'd never really been a venture investor, and, and that excited me. And I thought I had a role to play at helping people come into the ecosystem, and that a platform like Galaxy was, was the right thing to do. Um, now, truth be told, I am really good at a few things and not as good at others. Uh, and so I've you know, hired people to work alongside of me. Uh, some have been great hires, others have come and gone. But we're putting together a team of people that have varied skill sets to be able to uh, certainly fill in where I'm not good, uh, but bring their own talents to bear. Um, it's hard, right? It would have been a lot easier to be a... a an investor or even an asset manager because the asset management cost structure is just so much smaller when you're building infrastructure for the space. Um, so you guys can trade and, and other people can trade with us. Uh, that's, that's, that's expensive. Um, and so, you know, now I look back, I'm like, was I crazy? I did it because I thought I had a role to play is, is the answer. And that I thought it would be a, a new journey. Um, it wasn't necessarily as well thought out as a trade as I would have made if it was just a trade. 
Yeah, that makes sense. Leave a leave a, leave an impact on crypto. I think is, you know, it's it's a good it's a good 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 and noble good and good and noble thing to do. I want to um, I want to ask you about uh, just reflecting uh, reflecting on your career as as a trader. We'll discount Galaxy because he said it's less well felt out than a trade. I mean, what was your what was your favorite trade over your career that stands out to you? Well, when Asia blew up in 1997. That's when I went from a guy who made 25 million bucks in a year to 200. And we worked 21 hours days, literally for that whole 1997. I used to call them, you know, one year was a dog year. Uh, um, and it was by far the most memorable year because I went from boy to man as a trader, uh, or at least boy to young adult. Mm. Um, what you also learn is you make these discrete jumps. You're nervous around betting $500,000 and then $5 million. It's not linear. It, it, it's discrete. And I was able to bet a small amount of money and make a fortune in Thailand because I bet on the interest rate curve, uh, forward points in foreign exchange. And very few people were focused on that. And that allowed me ah, to feel like a, I could take more risk. And so I made that jump at Goldman Sachs from being a $10 guy to a $100 guy. Um, that's hard to do. Uh, some, some people in crypto made it quickly, but then they, they unmade it. Uh, the, the great thing about Goldman is once you made the money, the, the, the partner's like, thank you, and they take it from you. It's not yours. <laughs> and you start the next year yeah. with with bigger courage, but starting at zero again. Um, and so there wasn't this make it all, lose it all. Uh, it wasn't allowed. The Lloyd Blankfein was a fiercely good risk manager, uh, even if he didn't talk to you every day, every week, every month. Uh, when he smelled the money going, <laughs> he was on the phone. Uh, and so I, I think that was probably the most memorable. Listen, buying Ethereum at one uh, was both, I mean, it's a wonderful story. It was both lucky. It was, it was who you know, know in your network. I knew Joe Lubin. I would have never been engaged in Ethereum if it wasn't for him. I had met Vitalik before that. Um, and so... That's probably still, you know, one to, one to 4,000 that very few people, you know, to get a one to 100 is a pretty impressive trade. To get a one to 4,000, uh, that's a once in a lifetime. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a venture-like return and not just any, like you said, any venture type return. That's a Google or a Facebook or, yes. or even more. Um, yeah. And I think what protects a lot of venture capitalists from themselves is the fact that you know, seed stage private equity just isn't liquid. So when you're watching, when you're long Ethereum and you paid $1 for your tokens and you're watching it trading at 200, 400, 600, how do you restrain yourself from... So I, I tell you a funny story. I spoke at the first Ethereal and it was out in Brooklyn and, you know, Lubin had put it together and there was, I don't know, 400 people in an auditorium. And I asked, they were all the guys who built Ethereum and worked around it. I was like, well, who, who's ever owned Ethereum? And about two thirds of the hands went up. And I was like, well, who still owns it? And about 90% went down and it was trading about $70. Uh, and I was telling them about a thing that 
Paul Jones, Paul Tudor Jones, a great trader, used to call the pain of the game. It's harder to ride a trend, but great fortunes are made in trend. Um, and so you got to handcuff yourself to the chair. I usually leave that metaphor. I say, you literally got to handcuff yourself to the chair. It's easier to stop out than it is to let winners run. And by my end of my speech, that's how small the market was. The theory we got 80, 85, 90, 95, 100. The next day it's 130. I'm selling. <laughs> Handcuff yourself over there and I couldn't do it. And so I was lucky enough that I bought enough um, that I could sell a little bit, you know, and, and, and think of it like when something explodes like that, I thought of it like an option, almost like I was trading positive gamma. Um, you know, at one point I had a thing called the lockbox. I was like, well, no matter what, we're never getting into the lockbox of Ethereum. And I tell you what, if I was smart enough, I would have had it in a smart contract. I wasn't smart enough. Sure enough, I broke the lockbox when it went higher. Um, and so, listen, if I had kept all my Ethereum that I bought that first day, right, today it would be worth $2 billion. And let me tell you, I've, I made a lot of money on Ethereum, but it, I, my Ethereum is not worth $2 billion. And so uh, I get a lot of credit. I give a lot of credit to myself for holding as long as I did. It was made easier by the fact that I was already rich, right? I had made a billion dollars before I got into crypto in macro and in Fortress and in other stuff. Uh, and so my original size was bigger than most people's. Uh, and that made me more money in crypto. And my ability to not completely freak out. Um, listen, I... In, I don't want to discount the credit me and my team gets on. I remember in, in 17, I'd get in these ICOs and they'd be up a ton and I'd be selling it. And some of the crypto guys were like, ah, dude, we can't sell. This is a great protocol. And I'd be like, did you not hear me? It's my money and you work for me. And I said, sell it. And they still wouldn't sell. So I'd have to literally get another guy into the seat and say, please sell my goddamn tokens. Um, you know, it's hard for people. And for me, that was easier because... They, you know, tokens I didn't even know what, what they did were going up 30, 40, and 17. And so we had an ethos of taking profit um, in crypto. I just didn't believe there could be that many Googles. Like, you know, and I thought Bitcoin and Ethereum had such a head start on developing the network effect in the community that they were going to be my core holdings and everything else, uh, you know, if it's Polkadot or Luna or uh, you name it, I was a seller along the way. Uh, also helps you avoid avoid blowups a ton in this yeah. space, right? That that that, that constant taking taking chips off the table. I mean, I think in in, in twenty one especially one of, one of the hardest things that I, I run is like when when is the trend over, right? I think a lot of people want to buy the pico bottom and sell the pico top and then pat themselves on the back. And tell themselves that they're 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 great. It should have been easier. You knew year end people were going to try to ramp it into year end, and so like year end was the, the the it was you knew the Fed was going to start raising. Like that wasn't you didn't know what month, but they were going to start raising. You had had an unbelievable run, and the, the leader had already come off, and secondary things were going higher, right? I mean, Bitcoin was way off, and Luna kept going up, and so. We, we get credit. We sold, I don't know, this is probably public, but over a billion dollars of stuff. Uh, but I tell you what, I had another billion I could have sold. Uh, and it's hard. 
it's hard, you know, you talk about a public company and what you should keep because the shareholders want, you can make a thousand excuses not to do the hard thing. The hard thing was like, go to the sideline. And that's where Avi, to be honest, if it was me in a family office, it would have been easier, right? Uh, yeah. you're, you're not as public, you know. Uh, in 17, I did mostly that. Uh, uh, and every once in a while, I would, I would tell you, I guess I was like, Dude, you made so much money. Just sell it all, rent a boat, go away for a month and come back. And it's, you know, it's hard for people to let go. That adrenaline of, of, you know, and it's not just greed. It's, it's, you get committed to this cause. So you mentioned greed and cause. Uh, we know you're a very charitable guy. As we, as we run out of time here, um, you know, all of this, all of this, you know, capital that you generate from, you know, your discipline and your process, how do you like to reinvest it in the, uh, in the broader world of people who need it? You know, I think you need to spend some on yourself and your own community. Your community, when I say that, your family, your friends, you know, the people that you're, you surround yourself with because, you know, money's energy and it's, you should share some of that good energy. Um, and then you should look at, you know, how you can make an impact. Uh, I've, shifted my philanthropic focus a few times. I was a wrestler. So a lot of what started around youth sports and how that can build leaders. And so I started a thing called Beat the Streets or certainly helped accelerate Beat the Streets. Um, I then got into criminal justice reform. You know, well, I probably should have been thrown in jail for some of the shit I did as a teenager. Uh, I didn't really have a link to it until I started meeting people. And realize just what an unfair and stupid and uneconomic and immoral system we have. And so I got engaged with that. Um, democracy reform. Uh, and I found, you know, the more you give, the more you get. It sounds cliche. Uh, the stories I've, I've been told and learned and the places I've been, uh, the richness of my life at least half of it comes from those philanthropic experiences. Um, and so it's not that you're like a saint, you know, there's a selfishness to giving. It's, it's your learning, you're uncovering, you're connecting. And so that's why I encourage people to, to give. Um, it opens up new communities, right? And so come to my, my parties and uh, they don't look like, everyone else's parties. We've got young and old, black and white, you know, every color in between and um, income groups all over the place. Uh, and that's kind of what I love to do, to create that community that's not normally seen as a community. I appreciate that, Mike. And thank you. Thank you for spending the time to talk with us for an hour. Had a, had a great conversation. Maybe, maybe, maybe in the next one, I'll tell the story of you steamrolling me in wrestling. But... <laughs> <laughs> Man, we'll, 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 save, we'll save that one for the next time. All right, guys. Thank you, Mike.